And if, if you are not in kindergarten, I'm guessing you're staying in here. And so go ahead and have your Bibles open to the book of James. As a church, uh, we are part of the NAB, just so you know, the North American Baptist denomination. Uh, this weekend, uh, we are having our, our regional conference, uh, the NAB Northwest. And so there's about 45 uh, pastors and churches being represented down in Seaside this weekend. So Jake is there and Aaron is there. And uh, so that's just been a sweet time. And you know, what was fun, talking with Aaron and Jake, we were wrestling with, with who would come back here and preach. There, there was no short straw is what I was about to say. I was going to say, man, I lost. No, like it, it, was, it was such a joy. Like, okay, to stay there and to hear what's happening with the, per, with the pastors, great. Come home and be with Timberline, be able to preach and be with the church, great. There, there was no downside either way. And there was so much joy just as we wrestled and talked through about that. Y'all thought I was going to say something else, didn't you? Man, we're going to have to work on this. But at each of the sessions, at each of the sessions, um, some of the pastors would stand up and they would share some stories about just how God was working in their churches. And they would, what they were doing is they were giving evidence of God's grace working in their churches. So I thought of just, just kind of a personal question to you. I ask you, what evidence would you give if you had to say, how is God working in Timberline? So if you're a member here and you've been here, like think through, how would I answer that question? And secondly, I ask you this, what evidence would you give that, that God is working in your own life? Now, perhaps that sounds a little strange. Perhaps the idea of evidence isn't something you think of a lot. After all, we, we say we're saved by faith, by faith alone and Christ alone. Why do we need evidence? And so what I hope to show today through God's word is that we are saved to live a new life for the glory of God. Jesus said we are to be salt and light in this world. As Christians, everything we say, everything we do, our thoughts, actions, and words are all to be for the very glory of God. They're to point to the gospel. There's no such thing when we look at God's word as, as covert Christianity, just as we cannot cover up the sun, neither can we cover up our faith. Um, now, perhaps someone would say, well, my faith is different. My faith isn't very obvious. My faith's not like that. So that brings us to the question, does all faith save? Can you have a faith in Jesus that does not give evidence? So that's what James is going to be addressing today. So in one way, we're going to answer that question through our text in the book of James this morning. Secondly, let me give you another way. Uh, I just want to answer it through a quote by Martin Luther. In his preface to the book of Romans, this is what he says about faith. He says, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question rises, it has already done them and is always at the doing of them. He who, does not, he who does not these works is a faithless man, 
He gropes and looks about after faith and good works and knows neither what faith is nor what good works are, though he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. As you can see, as we're, we're going to be looking at, does all faith save? Can you have a faith without evidence? Martin Luther will clearly say no. And as we will see, James will say no also. Our main point this morning is genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ is made evident through works of righteousness. And that's what, what James wants us to see. That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to know. And so I'd like to encourage you to stand uh, we stand at the reading of God's word. We do so because his word comes to us, inspired by the spirit, so we would know God's will for our lives. We would know how to live for him. So this is what James chapter two, verses, and we're gonna read 14 through 26. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have, works and I have, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from the works is dead. Let me pray. Father, we we again just come to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And Father, we, we thank you for your word, the word that you have given us. Thank you that you have revealed to us your character, your promises, the hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you for giving us wisdom and instruction that we would know how to live out our faith. And so Father, today as we look at your word, give us understanding. Give us humility. I pray that we would have a living and active faith. I pray that our, our faith would bear fruit for the sake of the kingdom. And God, if there's anyone here today and they realize that, that their faith does not produce fruit, it's not working, and God, I, I pray that you'd, you'd move them to repentance. May they ask forgiveness for that. May they experience the blessing and joy of forgiveness and the life that you have given them. And together, may we live for you, for your glory. May we be a church that builds one another up, that advances the gospel because you have saved us for your glory. In your name, Jesus, amen. You may be seated. So I, I, I want to start out by just saying Paul and James are friends. Because it's important 
to, to make that notice. We're in the book of Galatians in a series right now. We're taking a break today. Uh, but we're in the book of Galatians, and we're making our way through. And Paul says, we're saved by faith alone, or we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And he is very clear, it is by faith, not works. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, uh, a couple weeks ago, this is what we read. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Elsewhere in Romans, Romans 3.28, Paul says, We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James cannot be more clear. But yet three times in our text, James is, we're justified by works, we're justified by works, we're justified by works. So which is it? We can, all, we can sometimes go, well, is Paul right? Is James right? Who's right? Who's wrong? The answer is that they're both right. We always come back to context, 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 context is everything. So Paul Paul is arguing in Romans and Galatians against the idea that our works, that you or I can do anything to earn favor before God, that by you doing something or by me doing something, we can set ourselves apart from the rest of humanity so that God looks at us and says, I want you. I am saving you because you did this, because you're better than everybody else. Nowhere does Scripture teach that. Paul says we are justified, we are saved by faith alone. So Paul is focused on, on what leads to conversion, how we come to believe in Jesus. But now James is fighting against a different kind of problem. He's arguing against the idea that you can be, faith, that you can be saved and not follow the commands of Christ. He wants us to know what it looks like to live out our faith in Christ. So Paul is saying, how do we come to believe in Jesus? And James is saying, what does it look like to live according to the life of Jesus and the instruction of Jesus? So life after conversion. One theologian said it like this. He summarized the argument. He said, Paul says, works cannot bring us to Christ. James says, once we come to Christ, they're imperative. Does that make sense? We tracking? So Paul and James, not enemies, they're friends. Together they say we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, but that faith does not remain alone. It produces works. So I've given context, and, and so that's hopefully helpful, but the most important thing is, is that really what the text says? And so I want us to now dig in, and we're going to look at Paul or James. I'm probably going to get those confused. Because Paul writes a lot, so often I'm just like, Paul said it. But sometimes James says it. So we'll try to make sure we keep it clear. Um, James is going to give two arguments about the necessity of works in the Christian life. And in between those two arguments, he's going to give an objection. So we're going to have argument number one, objection, argument number two. That's how we're going to make our way through the text. Argument number one, a faith that does not produce works is of no benefit. Because we need to understand that. Faith that does not produce works is of no 
benefit. We get that because in verse 14, James says, what good is it, my brothers? What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So we're, we're asking, can, can a faith in Jesus that gives no outward, tangible evidence be real? Can that faith, a faith which produces nothing, is that real saving faith? James isn't arguing about any kind of faith. He's focusing on a faith that does not produce works. Can workless, fruitless faith be saving faith? So in verses 15 and 16, he's going to dig us into like a case study. So he says, well, let's just flesh this out a little bit. And so he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, very likely, this is a it's a practical example that they can identify with, we can identify with. Very likely, it's something that they have experienced. So no one's going, man, I've, I've never thought about this before. I've never had this type of situation arise. Now notice, though, we're not talking about any poor and hungry person. Particularly, James says, if a brother or sister, we are talking about a fellow believer in Christ, someone who's been adopted in the family of God, someone who is brother or sister in the faith family. So here's the question. Does it do any good to tell a cold, hungry believer, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but don't do anything for them? Do those words by themselves accomplish anything? Do those words alleviate the pain that our brother or sister experiences? Do those words by themselves fill their bellies or warm their bodies? No. His point is they, they do nothing. There is of no benefit to telling someone who's cold and hungry, I hope you feel better and walk away when you have all the means of meeting those needs. Now, in fact, what's interesting is the Apostle John, in his first letter, so in 1 John, he teaches directly against this type of situation. 1 John chapter 3, this is what he says. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. Now notice who we're talking about again. We're specifically saying, seeing a family member in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? His point is, it doesn't. You cannot see a fellow believer in need have the ability to meet those needs, ignore those needs, and say, I have the love of Christ within me. He's saying, you cannot do that. Then he goes on in verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. It's not that words are worthless, but words need to lead to action. So here's James and John's, James and John's point. You cannot say you love Christ and fail to meet the needs of a fellow believer. Faith that consists merely of words and no action is of no benefit. In other words, it's not real faith. This means you could have the Apostles' Creed memorized, which, which many of you do, 
which I think we need to go back to testing that again. Do you all remember when we used to put some blanks in there? I feel like we paused when we moved to the slide from slide one to slide two. We're all like waiting. Um, but you could have the Apostles' Creed memorized, the Ten Commandments memorized, John 3.16 memorized, the books of the Bible memorized, even the minor prophets. And you would not be any closer to being saved than someone who has never heard the gospel. Do you get that? John and James are forcing us to realize that as believers, we must live out our faith. One of the ways we do that, just one of the ways we do that, is through acts of mercy and kindness towards other people, especially believers. So question we can then ask ourselves, am I prepared to meet the needs of those in this room? I've often said, come early, stay late. As believers, we ought to come to church ready to see one another, greet one another, and looking for ways to serve one another. If someone's not here, you don't need to say, well, I'm sure the office will make a phone call to them. Your faith in Christ is revealed by calling, praying, and then caring for those who are not here. That's how we demonstrate our faith. That's how we live out our faith. We have been saved that we would serve others, that we would see others, serve them, and care for them. And so notice how James comes to his conclusion now. Verse 17, he he concludes argument number one. He says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Workless, fruitless faith is dead faith. There's no such thing as a believer that does not strive to also follow and obey Christ. James wants us to know that if our faith consists of empty words, it is not real faith. So we need to know that. Especially here in America, it's easy. We can grow up in church. Our parents can be Christians. We grow up just kind of going to church, going through routines, and we can just say, well, I'm a Christian because I just kind of follow in the same pattern that my parents have done. But we've never confessed Christ. We've never believed in him. We do not delight in his word, and we do not follow his commands. And yet there are many people who say, well, I'm a Christian. Yet according to James, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ is more than words. It's an entirely new lifestyle, one that continually gives evidence by the way that we live. But now there's an objection. And James, what I love about this, Paul always anticipates objections. James anticipates this objection, and he knows what some of his people are thinking. So, objection that is that it's foolish to think that works and faith must go together. He knows that someone's thinking that. We see that in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. So that's the objection. So it kind of operates like this. One one commentator said, the objection is, is similar to the way we, we see um, the, the spiritual gifts. The argument goes like this. You might have the gift of preaching. You might have the gift of healing. You might have the gift of hospitality. You might have the gift of works. You might have the gift of faith. But nobody has them all. So don't tell me that I have to have works also. Some of us just don't have that gift. And if we're honest, I think we actually fall into this. 
I've heard this, and, and I think you've probably heard this too. We say things like this. I find it hard to read my Bible. I might not have that gift. I find it hard to pray. That's probably not my gift. Or we say things like this. That person does a really good job serving and practicing hospitality. I must not have those gifts. Or we look at this person and says, man, that person is amazing just with, with striking up conversations and talking with people. He just naturally shares the gospel with people. That just must not be my gift. Therefore, I don't do those things. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever lived out that? It's an easy temptation that I think we all fall into. So Paul then said, or see, this is where it happens. So James, verse 18, he says, show me your faith apart from your works. Okay, do it. Show it to me. You have faith, but not works. Show it to me. Prove it which indeed is absolutely pointless because you cannot do it. So then he says, and I will show you my faith by my works. Works give evidence of faith. Without works, we call into question the reality of faith. All over the New Testament, this is found. In fact, later in James, he'll say this in chapter three, verse 13. So if you just look one page to the right, James will say, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So how do you know someone is wise? Someone walks in and says, I'm really wise. Well, automatically, we probably know they're not wise. Um, but someone says they're wise, and you're like, are you? How will we know? By looking at their life. Do they, do they practice wisdom and understanding? Do they, do they live it out? Are they meek? How do they make decisions? How do they just demonstrate that? One theologian said, faith is proved by a way of life. When James says, show me your faith, he means good works make faith visible. Good works demonstrate that faith is real. A claim of faith is vindicated by a life of holiness and good deeds. So if someone says, look, I, I believe in Jesus Christ, and yet they do not follow Christ, meaning they do not live according to God's word, which unfortunately, and you know this, maybe you've been there, maybe you are there, there's a lot of people in this world that have grown up in a Christian family or culture, and they would say, I am a family, or I'm, I am a Christian, and yet they do not know Christ. And yet the world will then say, that person says they're a Christian, and yet they don't live like Christ. What good is it to be a Christian? To be a Christian is one who not only knows Christ and loves Christ and treasures Christ, but it's also one who lives like Christ and obeys Christ. Now what James says next should just make us all pause and tremble. In verse 20, he says, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So here's this point. If you want to argue that your workless, fruitless faith is valid because you know certain truths about God, then you are arguing from the position of a demon. Demons know things about God. Demons are monotheists. 
They know there's one God. Demons are Trinitarian. They know that this one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. Demons know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In fact, in Mark chapter 5, verse 7, in fact, you could look at this um, all throughout the life of Jesus. You have instances like this. But in Mark chapter 5, a demon-possessed man runs toward Jesus, falls down before him, and listen to what he says. He cries out with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. He knows exactly who Jesus is. There's no confusion. He bows down because he knows Jesus is God. But this demon does not love Jesus. He is not saved. And for anyone to say that they have workless, fruitless faith, that's the same as having dead faith, or as James would say, demonic faith. James is forcing us to realize not all faith saves. Real faith is not just knowledge about Jesus. Real faith knows Jesus, loves Jesus, trusts in Jesus, treasures Jesus, and obeys the words of Jesus. I ask you, do you have real faith? Do you know Jesus Christ? Not just facts, but you know him and love him. John John MacArthur said, Orthodox doctrine is immeasurably better than heresy. For it is true and points to God, but mere assent to it as true cannot bring a person to God and to salvation. I ask you again, so is your faith real? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you know that Jesus is the Son of God who left heaven, came to earth, lived for 30 years, a perfect, righteous life, was crucified and then rose, and as we said in the Apostles' Creed, sits right now on the throne of God. Do you know him? Do you know that there's only forgiveness of sins in him? Do you know him as your Savior and your Lord, your King, the one who orders and directs and shapes and informs the way that you live? Do you live to make him known in this world? Do you treasure him? Does your life give evidence of your faith? Something James wants us to ask that. He's forcing us to to pause here. So none of us can leave this room and go, well, I just know certain things about God. I must be saved. No, he says, do you know him and live like him? Or do you have the same faith as a demon? Do you know truths about God, but have never truly trusted in God? Or do you truly love him? There's a theologian and philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, and he had, he had a way with words. You know, some people are just amazing with they use words. And it was said that he had an arsenal of literary weapons, variously employing logic, paradox, scorn, humor, and parable. And so one of his examples is he talks about the importance of faith and works. This is his, this is his illustration. It's about duck land, duck land. It was Sunday morning, and all the ducks dutifully came to church waddling through the doors and down the aisle into their pews where they comfortably squatted. That's kind of an interesting thought. Think if we do that. When all were well settled and the hymns were sung, the duck minister waddled to his pulpit, opening the duck Bible and said, Ducks, 
You have wings, and with wings you can fly like eagles. You can soar into the sky. Use your wings. It was a marvelous, elevating duck scripture. And thus all the ducks quacked their ascent, and with a hearty, amen. And then they plopped down from their pews and waddled home. Some of you are still going, I don't get it. Hell will be filled with those who are monotheistic, Trinitarian, Orthodox, and lost. James says in 122 that we need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Listen, you've been saved by Christ to live like Christ. When you read God's word, when you listen to a message like this, As Christians, we ought to always ask questions. Every time you open up the Word, ask questions. Questions like, what does this text tell me about God? What does this text tell me about my sin and my need to be saved? What does this text tell me about what it means to live the Christian life? And so if we were to just focus on that one, what does this text, what does our text today tell us about what it means to live the Christian life? We could come up with several answers. One, my faith must be evident. So we, we, we'd be forced to realize, how is my faith made evident by the way that I live? Now, another way we would say that is, it appears that our faith is made evident through the caring and the serving of other believers. Do I do that? So we ought to force ourselves into that question. Do I care for the church? When there's a need, do I just simply say, well, somebody will meet that? Or do we jump at the opportunity and go, I'll do it. I'll meet it. It also ought to force us to ask the question, do I have evidence of my faith? And if I don't have evidence, it means one of two things. One, I'm not a believer. And thus, I need to believe in Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you to ask that. Are you a believer? If there's no evidence in your faith, do not be deceived into thinking that you are saved. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today and believe in him and experience the new life that he gives you. Two, you might come to the conclusion and say, look, I know that I'm a believer, but I do realize at this moment My faith has seemed to have plateaued, and there is no evidence of my faith lately. And I want to confess that, repent of that, so that I would live for Jesus. So I encourage you to do that today. Perhaps you know that you're a believer. But if you look at your life and you go, wow, this last week, this last month, this last six months, something has happened. My heart has been slowly hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I have not been living in according to the way that Christ has called me to live. I begin to ignore the word. I begin to ignore the instructions that he gives me. I begin to ignore the, uh, the church. And so confess that today. Experience the joy of forgiveness and the life that Christ gives you. We must ask questions when we come into God's word and wrestle with those truths that we know what it means to rightly believe in God, and what it means to rightly live for him. If someone has no gospel fruit, then they do not know the gospel truth. 
So we've looked at the first argument. We've looked at the objection. There's a second argument. We're going to go through this one kind of quickly. Um, and we're only going to look at one of his examples. So in this argument, in argument number two, James is going to say, Scripture proves that saving faith always produces works. Scripture proves it. Just like a good pastor, he goes, look, I can give you an illustration all day long, but let's look at God's word and see what it says. So he's going to take us into the Old Testament and say, does the Old Testament prove that faith always produces works? So he's going to look at two people. He's going to look at Abraham, and then he looks at Rahab. We're only going to look at Abraham today. Most likely, the reason he gives both is because some people are going to go, yeah, but Abraham's Abraham. Like, he's, he's like the greatest guy in the Old Testament. I mean, is anyone like Abraham? So then he's going to turn to what might be considered one of the lowliest people in the Old Testament, a prostitute from a Gentile nation, and say, well, let's look at her faith. And so from these two extremes in the Old Testament, he will say, faith always produces works. So we will only have time to look at the life of Abraham at this moment. And we're not going to unpack all of his life, but we'll, we'll try to make sure we grasp enough of what James is saying here. So in James 20, he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, he, he's being kind of abrasive, but he's not rude. He really sees there's people in the room have their arms folded and is like, mm, I'm not buying it. Like, you're telling me I have to have works? No, no, I don't think so. And so he's looking at him square in the face and says, you foolish, shallow, empty person. You need to pay attention to Scripture and make sure your life aligns with what Christ says. And so I encourage you, if that's you today, you're kind of like, hmm, this guy says I have to have works. This guy says I'm not a Christian if I don't have works. This is what Scripture says. So come and see the truth of what Christ says here. So he's not being abrasive. He's just trying to get their attention. And so James, he, he now looks at Abraham. Abraham's one of the greatest Old Testament figures. Abraham is the man that God chooses to bring all of his redemptive promises through in the Old Testament. And so it's through Abraham that God will, will create a people, which eventually Jesus Christ will come through, and which eventually all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so God promises a great nation and people through Abraham. The problem is Abraham has a wife named Sarah, and they can't have children. God's given this great, amazing promise, but there's no kids coming which that's necessary for a great nation to come from them. So God promised him a son, and about 25 to 30 years later, Abraham is 100 years old, God gave Abraham Isaac. And he said, it's through Isaac, this son, that all the promises will come through. So he gives him all these promises. 25, 30 years later, the son comes. And he says, through this son, everything I've told you will come true. A period of time passes, and God comes to Abram and says, I want you to go sacrifice Isaac. Now, surely that's one of the hardest commands that we see all throughout Scripture. Genesis 22, we read about this. Abram goes, and he, he brings his son on top of the mountain. 
and he prepares to sacrifice him. And this is what, this is what Hebrew says. The author of Hebrews comments on this passage. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his own son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. When we come back to James, verse 21. James says, Abraham was justified by his works. In verse 22, it says, faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. He's saying, we see his faith in God, that he was willing to sacrifice his son, knowing that God will raise him from the dead because all the promises have to come through him. So his actions flowed from his works. They com- his works completed his faith. The word completed means to mature. By Abraham's actions, his faith grew. It was seen as mature, just as muscles will not grow if they're not used. So our faith in Christ will not grow unless we obey the commands of Scripture. I hope you know that. A lot of times, I think sometimes we reach like a, like a stagnant part in our Christian life and we kind of fold our arms or, or we just kind of sit back and we say, well, God, when you want me to start obeying you, then just kind of ignite that passion within me. You ever think like that? You ever hear someone say like that? Just if God wants me to do it, he'll move me to do it. And yet, what we need to do is exercise our faith. We need to obey Scripture knowing that as we obey Scripture, our faith will grow. If you're here today and you feel like your faith is stagnant, I encourage you, exercise your faith. Obey the commands of Scripture, and you will experience the joy of faith in that. It's as we walk like Christ that we will grow and become like Christ. So now James says in verse 23 and 24, he says, Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and by faith alone. Now, now pause here. When it says Scripture is fulfilled, that Abraham was counted as righteous, that happens back in Genesis 15. And Genesis 15, 30 years earlier from the offering of Isaac and the birth of Isaac, we have God coming to, coming to Abraham and saying, look at the stars. If you can count those stars, that's how many people are going to come from you. And it says, Abraham believed God, and he's counted as righteous right there. He's justified. He's saved. He's, he's a believer in God. And 30 or so years later, he demonstrates his faith that he that he, that he was willing to sacrifice his son. And so Paul says that scripture is fulfilled. It proves he is righteous before God. He has been justified. One commentator said it this way, Abraham's work of offering Isaac vindicates God's declaration 30 years earlier, however, that he believes so that his faith is correctly counted to him as righteousness. Does that make sense? His lifestyle, his action proves the proclamation of God over him that he is righteous and saved and a believer in God. Our actions, our lives gives evidence of our justification that we are saved. 
Verse 25, James makes the same point through the life of Rahab. And in verse 26, just like he did under the first argument, he gives a conclusion in verse 17. So now in verse 26, we're given his second conclusion. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from the works is dead. Now, spirit can also be translated breath. And the point is, body requires breath to live, so faith requires works to be alive. You cannot have a, have a living, active body without breath, and you cannot have a living, active faith without works. Christopher Morgan, one commentator, said, the relationship between faith and works is like that between the body and its breath. Without breath, the body's a corpse. Without works, faith is dead. Religious words without accompanying works are worthless. So come back to our title, Does All Faith Save? No. You can have faith in Jesus and go to hell if you do not have real saving faith that produces works. If you merely have dead, demonic faith, a faith that merely knows things about God, but does not live in accordance to Scripture, gives no evidence, no fruit. It's useless, of no benefit. And according to James himself, he says, it's dead. So no one should leave here today unaware of where they stand with God. You either are here and you know that you have a living, active faith because you know you believe in Christ and you see evidence in your life. Or you know that you've rejected God and thus there is no evidence. Or you realize that what you thought was faith was not truly saving faith. So I encourage you, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and have trusted him, experienced the indwelling presence of the Spirit within you, which then causes us to now live a new way, I encourage you to repent and trust in Christ today that you would know the joy in the life of Christ. Martin Luther, again, this is how we began. He said about faith, it is living, busy, active. It's a mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question arises, it has already done them and is always at the doing of them. I pray let that be true of us. Let that be true of us, that our faith is always at work, not because we earn anything before God, but because true saving faith in Christ produces works. Let's pray. Our, our Father, we come.